Well, hey, welcome to First Church. I think it's awesome that you're joining us today for worship. If you're new, my name's Chad, and it's good to see you guys here in person. Hey, guys, it's good that you guys are joining us online as well. We're just so glad that you're here. And 2020 has been quite a year, hasn't it? It's been chaotic and kind of crazy, and this past week was no different. If you were like me watching the news, I mean, probably you were full of all sorts of emotions. I know I was, and we were hearing different news reports and all that. But the one thing that I got from this past Past week, more so than anything else, is that our country, our nation, is very much divided. I think you guys would agree with that. And I believe that a divided nation needs a united church. I think more than anything, what people need is to see God's people united, united in His truth, His gospel, His love, His peace, to show people who Jesus really is, to show people there's more to life than just what they see around them. I believe more than anything right now, our nation needs the church united in the mission and the message of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to talk about again today as we continue in our series coming home. And so I didn't do this, but if you guys here in person would, I haven't done this yet, if you guys here in person would, would you put your hands together and welcome in our online community, because they're joining us from all over the country right now, and also from different parts of the globe. And I'd like to begin the message today with a question. It's a question that I already know the answer to, but I'm going to ask it anyway, and it's this. Have you guys ever started something, but then not finished? You ever started something, but then not finished? And you had the best of intentions. Maybe you were even excited about starting it, but you just didn't follow through. You didn't stick with it. Maybe it was some project around your house. You know, you want to get this done, and so you started it, but you never actually finished it. Maybe it was picking up a new book to read. You thought, hey, I would really enjoy this book, and so you read the first few chapters, and then you didn't finish it, and now it sits on a shelf somewhere in your house, and you pass by it every now and then you're like hey I'm gonna finish that book one day and you just keep passing by it and you never pick it back up uh, maybe it's some life goal or New Year's resolution like I want to join a gym or I want to lose weight or start a new diet or whatever and you started it but you actually didn't stick with it you never actually finished it there are lots of different experiences in life we've probably had where we've started something and not finished it if I were to ask you to shout out one of those experiences right now I would probably hear a whole host of different examples and one example that I always think of when it comes to my own life. It's something that happened to me when I was in the first grade. It was an experience from my childhood. When I was in the first grade, my mom came to me and asked, Chad, do you want to take piano lessons? And what you need to know about my mom is my mom is musically gifted. I mean, she can sing well. She can play the piano well. So I thought, well, yeah, I would love to be able to play the piano like my mom. And so I was like, sure, mom, I'll take piano lessons. And I did take piano lessons for about a year and then I quit and I wanted to quit after the very first lesson because I didn't like it at all. Today I wish I could play an instrument. I really do but I didn't have the patience to stick with it. I was not naturally gifted like my mom was or is and so I just did not stick with it but I did take lessons for about a year because my parents had the mindset if you start something you need to do it for a while. You need to stay committed to it for a while and so I suffered through these piano lessons that I did not enjoy and even though I don't remember anything or at least not a whole lot from those piano lessons there is one thing I do remember, and that is the first real song that I ever learned to play. In fact, my piano teacher asked me to play this song in a recital. My one and only recital, by the way, asked me to play this in a recital before all these parents and other students, and I messed it up. I mean, I blew it big time, and I knew then this is not for me. But I would like to share with you that first song that I ever learned to play on the piano, but I'm not going to do it for you because I messed it up decades ago, and so I'm not going to mess it up again today. I've asked a friend of mine, Christy Fallis, to come out and help me out. So Christy, if you would come to the stage, let's welcome Christy to the stage today. 
Christy is not only uh, a member of our church, she's also the wife of one of our staff members, and she gives piano lessons. She is a piano teacher, so if you're looking for somebody to give you piano lessons, hey, here's a commercial for her real fast, because she's awesome. You can go see her after our services. But I've asked Christy to play what I was supposed to play in that first and only recital of mine years ago. Here's the song I was supposed to play. Now give it up for Christy, yeah. Now you may recognize that little melody, little tune. That's part of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, sometimes referred to as Ode to Joy. And I want to ask you, when Beethoven first envisioned that song, when he first thought about it in his mind and wrote it down on paper, do you think that that's what he had in mind, what Christy just played, a little one-handed picking through the notes version of that song? Well, of course not. If you've ever heard the Ninth Symphony, you know he had a whole lot more in mind. He had a symphony and vision that he wrote. And so when you listen to that adaptation of the song, you know that's a stripped down, very basic version that was not at all what Beethoven had in mind. And yet, when I listen to Christie play that song, I think, you know, that's how a whole lot of people live their lives today. See, your life is created by God, designed by God. He envisioned your life, and He had plans for you, and yet sometimes what we settle for is a life that is so much less than what He planned out for us, so much less than what He wants to give us. And what we do is we settle for a life that is far, far less than what our lives were ever meant to be. And Jesus doesn't want us living an incomplete or partial or half-life, an empty life. He wants us living the life that God envisioned for us, that God designed us and created us to live. And that's why Jesus says in John chapter 10, Jesus says in John 10, I came to give life, life in all its fullness. Jesus came so we could live out our God-ordained purpose. He came so we could live a full, complete, whole life. And Jesus, when you do life his way, he will add vitality to your life. He will add meaning and purpose to your life. He will give you contentment and joy and peace. But here's the key. you got to do life his way. Now, most of us who are here today probably know that. And what we tend to do is we tend to say, okay, we want Jesus as part of our lives because we know that if we have Jesus in our life or at least close to us, then he'll add something to it. So we sprinkle Jesus over our lives. We want to keep him close when we need something. Maybe there's a tragedy or crisis, so we want him nearby so we can call out to him. Or maybe we go to church on a regular basis because we want to get our $3 worth of God in every week or every other week or once a month or however often we come. And so it makes us feel better about about ourselves, and we want to be able to pray to him whenever we need him, and we own a Bible, and we pull it out whenever we need a little bit of comfort ourselves, but we've never really surrendered our lives to him. We just kind of partially follow him. We've never done what Jesus asked us to do in Luke. Listen to what he says in the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. He says, those who want to save their lives will give up true life. In other words, those who want to hold on to their way of life, hold on to their plans and their agendas, 
they'll never live true life, a full life, a complete life, a whole life. But those who give up their lives, for me, will have a true life, will live a complete, full life. We've never actually surrendered ourselves full and completely to God. So our lives are better than those who totally ignore God, but it's not quite still what God wants it to be. And so our lives look and sound a little bit like this. Now that's better than the first version you heard, but it's still not quite what Beethoven had in mind. Still not quite what he envisioned. That's kind of on the level that a 12-year-old might play it if that 12-year-old had stuck with piano lessons over the years, right? It's better, but it's still not quite what Beethoven envisioned. And when we just stay close to God, keep God at arm's length, that's how we live. Our lives are better because his truth will bring us some encouragement at times, and it will lift us up at times, and it will give us direction at times. But what I want to talk about today is not just giving part of your life to God or kind of going back and forth between God and our own agendas for life. No, what I want to expose you to today is the life that God created you to live. Life in all of its fullness. Because God didn't create you to live a partial, half, incomplete, empty life. God created you to live a life that sounds like this. is that just like I played it in the first grade just like that no not not at all nothing close to that guys God wants you to live a full life and why settle for a little one hand picking through the keys kind of life when you can live the symphony of a life that God envisioned for you to live but here's the key you got to trust him with your life you got to do life his way. you got to live life with him. Let him lead you. Let him guide you. And let me just ask, the life that you're living right now, is it the life that God knows you can live? Is it the life that God created you to live? Are you living life as God designed for you to live in? Or let me ask you this question. Are you robbing yourself of the life God wants to give you? Think about that for a second, and let's give it up for Christy one more time for helping me out. Thank you so much. You'll have a gift card waiting for you, so thank you. I appreciate that. Appreciate that a whole lot. Let's go back to this question. Are you robbing yourself of the life God wants to give you? Because I believe that's one of the questions that Jesus wants us to answer 
as we study the parable of the prodigal son. If you've been with us the past few weeks, you know that we're taking a deep dive in this series into the most famous parable that Jesus ever told. Some people have called it the most famous story that's ever been told, the parable of the prodigal son. And the reason why we're taking several weeks to study this parable is because I believe this parable not only captures the entire story of the Bible, but this parable, better than any other story in Scripture, captures the heart and the nature of our God. And every time I come back to this story, I learn something new about God, I learn something new about people, I learn something new about myself. And so if you're wondering why we're studying this passage over the course of several weeks, it's because I think we need to. And I've heard a ton of positive feedback from you guys. And we're going to be in this story again next week as well. But before we do, I think we need to focus a little bit more on what it means to live the life that our Father wants us to live. See, what Jesus had to do was Jesus needed to redefine who God was for the people in his day. And I think he needs to give us a fresh picture, an accurate picture of God today as well. Because many people in his day and age, they thought that God was this cosmic scorekeeper up in the heavens, just weighing our good and bad deeds, keeping track of our right and wrongs. And the whole goal of life was to get to the end of life with more good deeds than bad deeds. And so when Jesus starts to hang out with people who are known for being notorious sinners, well, well, they wonder, can this guy really be sent from God? Because God wouldn't hang out with these people. These people have a whole lot more bad deeds in their calling than they have good deeds. And Jesus says, the reason why you're asking that question is because you have the wrong image of God in mind. You have an inaccurate picture of God. God isn't a cosmic scorekeeper. God is a father who relentlessly loves his kids, who loves his kids even when they don't love him, who never gives up on his kids even when they give up on him. And that's why I've said over and over again in this series that I think a better name for this parable is not a parable, the parable of the prodigal son, but the parable of a father's relentless love because this parable is all about God. Jesus is giving us an accurate view of who God is. And he does so in Luke chapter 15 as he tells this parable of a father who has two sons. And I think what Jesus is trying to accomplish back then and even today is this. Jesus, in a very clear and captivating way, clears up any confusion about who God really is and what his desires for us really are. So let's pick up where we were. We know stories about a dad, a father, who has two sons, an older son and a younger son. Both sons end up rebelling against their dad, and their dad continues to love them. And next week, we're going to look at the older brother, the older son, who stays at home but still rebels against his dad. And I really, I think that's part of the parable that we've ignored. We've really overlooked a lot, and we're going to dive deep into that section next week. But today, I want to look again at this younger brother, because I think what he does illustrates what he gave up and the life that the father wanted to give him. See, this younger son, he comes to his dad one day and says, Dad, I want you to liquidate all of your assets and give me my share of the inheritance. Basically, he says, Dad, I wish you were dead. You're just in my way. I want your money, and I want it now, and I don't want to have to wait for you to die. You're standing in the way of my happiness. I want to go off and live my own life. I want to get you out of the way so that I can go do what I want to do. I love what you can do for me more than I actually love you. And as insulting as that request was to have his inheritance now before his father died, what, even more, what is even more shocking is that the father does what the son asks. The father in the parable divides up his stuff, and he gives the younger son his share of the inheritance. And we talked last week about why the father did that. 
Because the father knew that the son's heart was already somewhere else. And he could have forced the son to stay on the family estate. But here's the thing. By forcing him to stay, it just would have driven the son's heart further and further away from him, from his dad. And so the father has to let him go so that the son would eventually realize what he's missing and want a relationship with his father. So Jesus says his father, he lets his younger son go. And this is what happens. He goes off to a distant land. And in Luke chapter 15, we find out that not long after the younger son, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Now we understand that parables have a lot of symbolic meaning to them. And so when we see these two words, distant country, what exactly is Jesus talking about? What does this represent? Well, the distant country is any area of life where you live at a distance from God. I like to put it this way. The distant country is any area of our lives where we tell God, hands off. We say, God, I really don't want you in this area of my life. I'm good. I've got my own plans. I've got my own agenda. I'm good, God. I can handle it on my own. I don't need you. Now, some of us, we've lived seasons and years in the distant country. But some of us, we just like to compartmentalize our lives. We have certain areas that remain the distant country for us. You know, we're all about God being with us, like, on Sunday mornings when we're in church, right? Well, we're all about God being with us when we're celebrating a holiday like Christmas or Easter that's supposed to be focused on him or son. You know, we're all about having God around us when we need him, like maybe during a funeral or in the midst of a crisis or something like that. But what about when you go to that party on Friday night? God, I'd rather not have you around. What about when you're alone with your boyfriend or girlfriend? God, I just wish you weren't here right now. What about when you walk into that board meeting or business meeting and you're thinking, no, I'm going to be somebody different right now than, what, than who I was on Sunday morning. God, I wish you just weren't around right now. Man, what about when you're alone at home, family's not around, wife's not around, and you're just alone with your laptop or your phone? Do you wish God wasn't around? You ladies, when you get into a group and somebody starts gossiping, do you wish God wasn't around to hear it? We have a tendency sometimes to enter into certain areas of life that we wish God just wasn't around. And those areas for you, whatever that may be, that's the distant country. It's an area of our lives where we say, God, we just wish you weren't here. God, hands off, I'm just going to do what I want to do. But those of us who have spent an extended amount of time in the distant country... We've had to learn the hard way that life lived at a distance from God will always be a diminished life. And that's what happens for the prodigal son in our passage. See, he builds his own life, but his life, this life that he built for himself, quickly crumbles. It quickly falls apart. Listen to what Jesus says happens. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the paws that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. See, this son goes off to this distant country, and while he's there, he hits rock bottom. 
See, his life falls apart. For a while, he's living it up, and the distant country seems fun and exciting, and it sounds great, but eventually, the law of diminishing returns kicks in, and he ends up with nothing. See, he's giving up and giving up all this wealth and money that his father gave him, and he's getting nothing in return, at least nothing that matters. And what this son ends up with, he ends up being lonely, hungry. He ends up feeling empty, ashamed, full of regret, full of guilt. The fun journey to the distant land, the distant country, ends with him being in a cesspool of darkness and emptiness and sin. And Jesus describes just how low this boy had gotten by saying that he ended up working for a pig farmer to take care of pigs, to feed pigs. See, that may sound like a dirty job to us, and it is a dirty job, but I think the significance of that is kind of lost in cultural translation sometimes. See, this young man, he was a first century Jew, and strict Jews lived a kosher life. It's not just that they didn't eat pigs, they didn't go around pigs. They wouldn't get in close proximity to a pig. And this younger son, he's not just close to pigs, he's living on a farm with them, he's taking care of them, he's feeding them himself. There was no lower occupation, no lower profession in a Jewish mind than that, in the Jewish mind than that. And it gets even worse. Look at what Jesus goes on to say. He says, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. In other words, he says to himself, the pigs have it better than me. At least the pigs aren't starving to death. The pigs are living a life that's better than the life that I am currently living. That's how low his life has gotten. He has hit rock bottom and he realizes that he is robbing himself of the life that his father wanted to give him you know what I think Jesus is teaching us something here I think Jesus is telling us that sometimes sometimes we have to hit rock bottom to realize what we're missing let me reword that just a little bit sometimes God lets us hit rock bottom so that we will realize what we're missing sometimes God allows us to hit rock bottom so that we will realize what we're missing. I'll never forget having a conversation with a guy not too long ago, and he was telling me about how he almost really messed up his life. He was caught up in some sin, and he almost lost his wife. He almost lost his family. He almost lost his career, and he got caught in this sin and in that moment, he decided to turn his life over to God because he'd been running from God. He'd been going the opposite direction of God. And he decided to turn his life over to God. And when he did, his life didn't become instantly easy. But over time, he was able to save his marriage. He was able to save his family, hold his family together. And he ended up finding another job where he could continue to support his family. And I remember meeting with this guy and... I was having a conversation about his experience, and he looked at me and he said, Chad, do you know what's worse than getting caught? I was like, no, what? He said, not getting caught. Because he said, as long as I was getting by with it, I just kept going down that road of destruction. I just kept taking a path that I didn't need to take. As long as I was getting by with it. 
But the moment that I got caught, I had to make a decision. Do I keep taking that road? Do I keep going down this same course? Or do I make a change? Do I give my life? Do I surrender my life to God? And he said, I'm so glad that I decided to surrender my life to God because God in that moment lifted me out of the pit that I had been living in. Sometimes we have to hit rock bottom to realize what we're missing. And that was the prodigal son in this passage. He finally hits rock bottom and he realizes that what he's missing is his dad. The same thing that that the guy that I just talked about was missing, his heavenly father. And look at what happens here as we read on in this passage. It says, when he came to his senses, I love that line. He said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. Look at that first line again. When he came to his senses. You ever been there? I have. I remember the day that I came to my senses, that I realized that my life wasn't all about me, that it wasn't about just fulfilling my selfish desires, that I was created for something greater than that, more than that, that God had a plan for my life. I remember when I came to my senses and it hit me and my eyes were opened. And that's what this prodigal experience is. He may not understand exactly what life is supposed to be all about just yet, but he knows this isn't it. His current life isn't it. He knows there has to be more out there. And guys, that's what gets me out of bed every morning. That's what keeps me going in ministry is hearing story after story after story of people who have had life robbed from them. But one day they come out of their spiritual concussion and they realize that they were created for more than the pigsty that they've been living in. The fog lifts and the light bulb comes on and the cobwebs come down and they realize that they were created for more than a life of reckless sin. They were created to be recklessly loved by their heavenly father. That's what gets me going. And in ministry, I love hearing story after story like that. And I don't want you to miss this. This is probably the most important thing that I'm gonna say today. God created you for more than a life of reckless sin. He created you to be recklessly loved by him. Don't settle for anything less. But the question that I need to ask you, is that what you really want? Because how long are you going to stay in the pig pen? In other words, what will it take for you to come to your senses? What will it take for you to realize that God created you for so much more than the life you're currently living. What's it going to take for you to set the bottle down? Well, that bottle, it might numb your pain, but it won't take it away. What's it going to take for you to seek the counseling that you know that you need? What's it going to take for you to realize that jumping from one bed to another, that that will never satisfy you, that that will never give you what you're looking for? What's it going to take for you to realize that your bank account and your career doesn't define your self-worth? No, your identity as a child of God defines your self-worth. What's it going to take for you to realize that practicing an empty religion isn't enough, that you need a relationship with your heavenly Father? What's it going to take? Guys, I have heard story after story of People saying, I can't believe that I gave up my life for what I thought would be the end all and be all 
and it ended up giving me nothing at all. I can't believe that I lost my career for this sweetheart deal that I should have never taken. I can't believe that I lost my family for a fling. I can't believe that I gave up my reputation to please a bunch of people who don't even like me. I can't believe that I betrayed my friends for my own selfish gain. I can't believe that my kids or family don't want anything to do with me because I chase after what I wanted. Guys, the situation may be different for everybody, but the theme is the same. I can't believe that I thought would be the end all and be all ended up being nothing at all. That's what this younger son realizes. And his eyes are finally opened. And once his eyes are opened, nothing looks the same anymore. He knows what he's missing and he decides that he's going to set a course for home and not turn back. About a year or so ago, I was watching TV and I came across a news story about, well, a kid that got a special gift from his principal. This student in school got a gift because he had been born colorblind. and been colorblind his entire life, and this principal gave him these new glasses that you can put on, and they allow for you to see colors if you're colorblind. And so this principal gave him this gift because the principal himself was also colorblind, and somebody had given him those glasses, and his world just was forever changed once he was able to see colors. And so he wanted this little boy, this student of his, to see colors as well and take a look at what happened when the boy got those glasses. They're all yours. Okay, they're all yours. Let's see what it, see what it does. <laughs> so what do you think there? Look, people. He cried. That's awesome. Hey, come here. Come here, dude. Oh, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> Mom, you better get in there too. That is so awesome. I told you it's going to be a little emotional. <laughs> hey, now that just tells you how beautiful of a world you have. God and I got to see it for the first time, right? So be happy. Be appreciative of it. I love what that principle says. It just shows you how beautiful our world is, and now we can see it for the first time. Once your eyes are open, you never see the world the same again. See, that's why Paul, in the book of Ephesians, he writes this to the church at Ephesus. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart will receive light, will be opened, basically. Then you will know the meaning of the hope of God's invitation, the riches of his glorious inheritance. So let me ask, when's the last time that you prayed for God to open your eyes? When's the last time you prayed, God, I know there's something in my life that I'm not seeing right now that you want me to see. So God, Open my eyes to what I'm not seeing right now. When's the last time you prayed, God, open my eyes? This younger son had his eyes open, and when he did, he set a course for home. For him, there was no turning back. He finally got it that his father had the life that he was looking for, and only by doing life with his father could he really live? So let me ask you another question. Do you really believe that God wants what's best for you? Do you really believe that God has your best interest at heart? 
Because we say that a lot in church. We sing about that. We pray that. We say that God has our best interest at heart, that God wants what's best for us. But do we really believe it? Because if we do, we're going to pursue him at all costs. But I think part of the reason why sometimes we say this, but we don't necessarily pursue him like we should, is because we allow for ourselves to get in the way. Guys, I had to learn a hard truth years ago that was difficult for me to comprehend and get, but once I got it, it changed my life. And this is the truth that I had to learn. I had to learn that my life is not my idea. My life is God's idea. And I know that sounds simple, but this is life-changing right here. Guys, my life, it's not my idea. I didn't create me. I didn't design my life. I didn't come up with me. My life is not my idea. My life is God's idea. And I think it's a pretty good idea, actually. But my life is God's idea. He designed me. He created me. He made me. He loves me. And he knows what is best for me. So if I want to live out my life's full potential, I've got to do life his way. And the same is true for you. Your life, it's not your idea. You didn't come up with you. You didn't create you. Your life is God's idea. He created you. He loves you. He has a plan for you. He knows what's best for you. You gotta do life his way. It's the only way to really live. But like I said, pride sometimes gets in the way. Don't let your own pride keep you from seeing the life that God wants you to see keep you from living the life that he wants you to live. That's why in the Old Testament, God gives this warning to his people. In Obadiah 1 verse 3, he says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. How often is that the case, that our own pride deceives us, it blinds us from seeing what God wants us to see? I like to put it like this. Where God, where God wants to open our eyes, pride is always working to keep them closed. Don't let pride, don't let your own selfishness rob you of the life that God designed you to live because you have a father who has so much more in store for you. And here's the thing, this father who created you and loves you, if you're in the pit right now, he wants nothing more than to lift you out of that pit. Don't leave here missing that. You may have gone off to the distant land. You may be somebody who has a foot in the distant land and a foot in the church right now. You're going back and forth, back and forth. I don't know. But wherever you are right now, you have a father who loves you. And he has the power and the ability to lift you out of the pit that you're living in. And he wants to do just that for you today. He wants to replace your sadness with joy. He wants to replace your emptiness with purpose. He wants to replace your fear with peace. He wants to replace your rebellion with restoration. He wants to replace your sin with his grace. He wants to give you a fresh start, a brand new life today. And that's exactly what the father in the parable of the prodigal son does for his son. Look at what the father says when his son comes home. He says, let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. 
You see, this younger son, because of his rebellion, he would have been considered dead to his entire Jewish community. He would have been considered dead to his family. And the only one that can make somebody an official family member again, we've talked about this, is the father, the patriarch of the family. And so what this dad is doing is he is saying, everybody else considers my son to be dead, but I am declaring today he is alive again. I am adopting him back into the family. Ride him back into the inheritance. Bring out my will. I'm going to ride him back in. He is my son, and I want the world to know it because I have the power and the authority to bring anybody into my family that I want to. And this son, this boy, is a member of the family again. I love that. And that's what God wants to do for you today. If you've been living in a distant country, if you've been hanging out in the pig pen way too long, you don't have to anymore. Let today be the day where the fog lifts and the light bulb comes on and you come to your senses and you realize that you were created for more than a life of reckless sin. You were created to be recklessly loved by your heavenly Father. I heard this quote years ago and I'm not sure who first said it. I tried to look it up. Some people say C.S. Lewis said it. And there are other authors that they claim said it. I don't know who actually said it, but it's good. You can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. I love that. Guys, you can't go back and change what you did yesterday. You can't go back and change what you did this morning. You can't go back and change what you did years ago, back in high school or whatever. You can't go back and change what you did in the past. But you can make a change today by surrendering your life to your Father, and He will change your ending he will make sure that you are safely at home with him. So are you tired of living in a distant country? Are you tired of living in spiritual poverty? Are you tired of feeling empty on the inside? I've got two words for you. Come home. That's the invitation that our Heavenly Father is making today. That's what he wants you to hear you can come home today. No matter where you've been, no matter how long you've been in the pig pen, you can come home today and you have a heavenly father waiting to lift you out of the pit. So let me ask, what type of life are you living today? I'm going to attempt this. I'm more nervous to do this than preach any day. Nailed it. But here's the thing. Decades later, that's all I can do. I can't do anything else. And right now, if you've been in the same spot for some time, for days, for weeks, for months, for years, for decades, you don't have to live that type of life anymore. Today, today, you can live the symphony of a life that God created you to live. 
All you got to do is come home. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for today and this chance we had to open up your word. And Father, to look again at this powerful, powerful parable. Because every time that we look at it, we learn something new about you and we learn something new about ourselves. And Father, I just pray that we would listen to the example that your son gave us when he told this parable. That no matter what pit we've been living in, you have the power to lift us out of it. And so, Father, I pray for those who have just listened to this message, whether they're in person or they're online right now, I pray that they will seek the help that they need, that today will be the day that they come to their senses and they realize that they were created for so much more than a life of reckless sin. Father, may we stop settling for a life that is far less than what you envisioned for us. May we live today the symphony of a life that you designed for us. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.